All right, hello, welcome. Did you get the theme song? <laughs> I did not get the theme song. <laughs> no. did I, what did I miss? <laughs> well, no theme song. Fine. <laughs> All right, welcome to Vertigo Voices. My name's Colby. My name's Sophia. And we're going to be talking about Vertigo Comics. Um, since this is the first episode, I guess we'll start with, I don't know, a little bit of history of Vertigo the Mature Reader's imprint for DC Comics. Started in 93, created by Karen Berger. Did you read a lot of 80s comics? I came to 80s comics probably pretty late in my life in terms of comic consumption. Uh, probably not until I was in my late teens, early 20s. Yeah. Well, me too. Because <laughs> if we were born in the 80s, so it's not like we're going to be hopping out of the womb reading... Uh, uh, swamp thing or something, but but I mean, you, now as an adult, you you you've, have you read very many? I think so. I've read a goodly amount. I'm certainly not as versed as you are, but uh, yeah. they make up more of my collection now. Because mm-hmm. like you know, back in the '80s, there was like a big push for kind of more quote adult comic books, like Alan Moore's Swamp Thing and Neil Gaiman, you know, Sandman, Black Orchid, all that stuff. And kind of the fan base was growing up, so then the comics grew up with them. Uh, most people point to uh, Watchmen by Alan Moore or uh, Dark Knight Returns. I always want to say Dark Knight Rises, but <laughs> <laughs> Dark Knight Returns or Batman Year One by Frank Miller. And Vertigo was kind of grown out of that, uh, I guess, awakening of comic books or Growing up of comic books, which is a term I fucking hate, but <laughs> and and seeing kind of the success of those more mature stories in 1993, Vertigo folded a lot of books that had already been in that kind of mature universe, like Animal Man, Doom Patrol, Shade the Changing Man, Sandman, Hellblazer, and Swamp Thing. Um, those were like their launch titles that had already been with DC. Uh, and then they added some limited series, uh, like Kid Eternity, which is a spinoff of a miniseries that uh, Grant Morrison had written in the 80s, and uh, another series called Black Orchid, which is a spinoff of a Neil Gaiman 80s comic, and then Books of Magic, which also spinoff of uh, another Gaiman work. Do you have any, like, uh, memories of that time, like m- mid-90s comic books? Definitely Sandman. Mm-hmm. Definitely Sandman. I, I just think that if you're into comic books at all, especially Vertigo, that just kind of becomes an imprint on your mind and what you see when you close your eyes, even if you haven't read all of the books. It's kind of become one of those statements, uh, I guess just a, a figurehead mm-hmm. for Vertigo in the sense that even if you haven't read one of the comic books, then you are still familiar with the imagery. Black Orchid. Uh, I, I came to that later in life. But was that a, a Neil... Who originally did Black Neil Gaiman wrote the first miniseries. Yes. And then the ongoing series, damn it, I can't remember who wrote it. I have the whole series, so if you want to go dig through it. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember who wrote the uh, ongoing. Let me see. Dick Foreman. Art by Jill Thompson and Rebecca Gway. Is that how you pronounce that? Why, Gray? Sure. Something like that. Anyway, so yeah, that, that was one of the launch titles. <laughs> <laughs> Our apologies to all the hardcore 
Rebecca Gway fans out there. Well, that's fine, because now you have an encyclopedic knowledge of the grounding of Vertigo without any gaps, because we covered it all extensively just now. We did. One of my favorite things, actually, about the creation of Vertigo is some of the miniseries that they got weren't developed for Vertigo. So back in the early 90s, Disney was trying to create like a mature audience's comic book imprint, I guess. Um, yeah, it was called Touchmark, I think. Yeah, Touchmark. Touchmark Comics. It was supposed to be analogous to Touchstone Pictures. They, they developed all these series like Enigma, Sebastian O, Mercy, and Shadows Fall. And those four series were then abandoned during the Disney implosion in 1991. And uh, Vertigo and Karen Berger picked them up and uh, published them all as uh, Vertigo comics. I think Enigma is technically the first miniseries that Vertigo put out, if I recall. But it started its life as a Disney property. Yep. <laughs> Mind blown. <laughs> yeah, especially a book like Enigma. I can't imagine Disney anywhere near something like that. Um, but it was written by Peter Milligan with uh, art by Duncan Fagrado. Fagrado? I don't know how to pronounce his name. Um, but anyway, it's a good, weird book. One of the first Vertigo miniseries that I read, but again, it was long after the fact. There's no way I was going to be reading that in second grade. But I, I believe the first new issue of a comic that Vertigo put out was uh, Death, High Cost of Living. Okay. After Sandman had already been very successful. And after uh, after Sandman, which is is still well, no, no, excuse me, it's an it's an audio book now. It was recently developed into the yeah, audio the book. it was audio drama through Amazon Studios, Audible. Okay, that's its most recent incarnation. Yeah, but um, for you, I want to backtrack just a little bit and talk about because you mentioned um, talking about how we both were introduced to. Vertigo Comics, mm -hmm. and if you're okay with it, I would like to go first, yeah, because yeah. your story has a touch of kismet to it that mine just doesn't. In that case, then, how did you first stumble upon Vertigo Comics? Uh, it was entirely by accident, and I'm pretty sure my first Vertigo comic was Tank Girl. Uh, the movie came out, the movie sucks, in case anyone was wondering or you haven't seen it. It's, it's all right. I recently rewatched it. When was the last time you, you saw it? I probably saw it like, I don't know, six, seven years ago. It's been a while. But, uh, okay, the movie isn't that bad. I remember seeing the animated parts and thinking, that looks really cool, but I'm not saying this with 100% certainty, but I'm pretty sure that the, uh, the writers and the illustrators, Jamie Hewlett and, uh, oh, who was the other guy? Alan Martin? I don't know. It's your anyway. wheelhouse. Anyway. <laughs> they did the animated parts to the movie, and I remember thinking, that looks badass. That looks really cool. Um, but anyway, I actually liked the movie a lot when I saw it as a kid, just because it was unlike anything I'd ever seen, and my parents wouldn't allow me to watch it, so it had that forbidden fruit to it. And I can't remember the name of the comic shop. It's probably defunct now, but every summer we would go and visit my grandmother in the Tri-Cities, mm -hmm. and she would take us to this comic shop. Uh, which my brother really wasn't into, but I was all about it. And anyway, I just remember um, going in there and seeing this crazy cover of Tank Girl. I can't even remember what issue it is, but it's the one where she's got atomic bombs for breasts. Oh, yeah. And I was like, oh, what's this? And I was probably 
I can't remember what year the movie came out, but I wasn't that old. And I took it down and I opened it to like some random page and uh, in true tank girl fashion, like I, she was like on a drug bender and, you know, she was waking up from another hangover, probably covered in some type of bodily fluid. <laughs> and I remember showing it to my grandmother and being like, Grandma, can I get this? And my grandma basically being like, mm, no, I don't think so. <laughs> and so that was pretty much my first experience with vertigo. And at the time, I didn't know it was vertigo. Like, I was too little to make that association. Yeah. But now on to you. And how so that, you... that would have been... I don't know, 93, 94, something like that? Yeah. Or maybe later. Early to mid-90s, okay. I think, probably. Gotcha. So, 95, 96. Yeah, so we, we would have... You're, we're about the same age, right? So we would have been in elementary school, somewhere around there. Yeah, probably too young for Tank Girl. <laughs> probably, yes, yes. In our So, yeah, I mean, I've been a comics fan my whole life, but I've always kind of hewed, especially as a kid, hewed way more to the superheroics and... Justice League. I've always been a DC kid, but just like the mainstream stuff. And I remember being in about 7th or 8th grade and kind of having like a crisis of conscience. Like, I feel like I'm too old for so many of these comics, but it's like a big part of my life. And I don't just want to give it up. At the time, the only comic I was really reading anymore was Grant Morrison's JLA. Hold on, let me back up. <laughs> so, <laughs> I remember a... a, a a trade book, like one of those uh, previews, there was on one side um, a story about Starman, like the new Starman comic. And I remember thinking, like, oh, that looks cool. And then on the other side, there was a poster for Sandman Midnight Theater, which the one where Wesley Dodds meets Morpheus. And uh, that, like, looked super creepy to me. And I was like, okay, no way. Putting that away. <laughs> and that was probably when I was in, like, second grade, third grade. And then a few years later, I was looking through Wizard Magazine and saw um, advertisement for the new DC Direct toy line of John Constantine, and there was one for like Spider Jerusalem too. And I just remember thinking that the toys looked so freaking cool. And uh, I decided I wasn't going to give Hellblazer a try because it was like that one seemed after after looking into it a little bit, that one seemed like a little too extreme for. Seventh grade Colby, <laughs> eighth grade, I don't know, whatever year it was. So I, uh, but I went to my local library and was just digging through their graphic novels. I grew up in a little town called Walla Walla, Washington that has an amazing library and it has a huge graphic novel section. And I remember finding Watchmen, the first volume of Starman by James Robinson and Tony Harris, and uh, Preludes and Nocturnes, the first volume of Sandman. So within one summer, I read all three of those books, <laughs> and that was like like a light switched on in my head, and I was like, oh my, this is what comics could be. <laughs> like, Starman is still my favorite superhero comic. It's the first comic book that I got every issue of. Watchmen, like, blew me away. Again, as a kid who had these superhero tropes, like, baked into my mind, reading something like Watchmen that dismantled them and... Uh, use those tropes to su such an effective, like, I don't know, uh, like turning them on their head, you know, uh, in such an effective way, like, that that just blew me away. And then Preludes and Nocturnes, the first Sandman volume, just the poetry of that uh, got me immediately want to start reading Hellblazer and any Vertigo book that I could find from then. I think within the next year, just from the library, I'd read almost the entirety of Sandman 
and a few other Vertigo books. But yeah, that was <laughs> that was like my my formative moment. <laughs> See, that's that's an awesome story. No no sarcasm or cheesiness <laughs> intended. That's and thank our local public libraries. Yeah, that's, exactly. That's a really great collection for a library. Yeah, and I you know I I don't live in Walla Walla anymore. I haven't been back to that library in ages. But uh, it was actually did you hear about this? That library was just on like national news recently because. During COVID, they've been doing some like renovations, and within a wall, they found a six pack of Ham's beer and a pack of Godzilla chewing gum from the seventies. <laughs> oh like, like, I don't know if it was an employee of the library or like a construction worker back then while they were renovating or building the building or whatever. Uh, somebody had stuck that stuff in the wall and then <laughs> left it. it, and it was just discovered like two weeks ago. And it has been all over the news. Like, my mom sent me an article from CNN about it. (laughs) (laughs) So a great collection and a lot of unique history there. Yeah, exactly. On that note, do you want to jump into your first pick? Yeah, well, for people listening, I, uh, I figured since this is the first episode, and this isn't necessarily, I don't know, like the episode to episode, I don't know that we're going to have like a strict format to stick with like lists or reviews or whatever, but I figured at least to begin with, we could just talk about our favorite Vertigo stories. Issues, story arcs, books, reference books, whatever. <laughs> just our favorite Vertigo stories. So yeah, uh, if you want, I can go first. And uh, I'm going to start with a Hellblazer arc called Dangerous Habits by Garth Ennis. I think it was his first issue on the book? No, it wasn't. Uh, maybe? Damn it, I can't remember. Um, I think it was his first actual issue on the book that he wrote. It was written in uh, 91. Um, Garth Ennis wrote it, who then went on to do uh, a Preacher for Vertigo, which is kind of his magnum opus. Will Simpson did the art on it. When I first read it, it was probably about a year or so after my uh, Vertigo Awakening. <laughs> um, it just blew me away because of how simple it is. The story is so focused on John battling cancer, and it's almost like the demonic stuff is plays second fiddle to that. It's a very human story, uh, and a really human look at coming to terms with death, and then like fighting like hell to avoid that. And it, it was one of my first introductions to John Constantine, aside from his brief appearance in Sandman. And uh, I really fell in love with the character and the book and everything. I actually recently reread it. Like, last year, I read through the entirety of Hellblazer, which is fun, but um, I didn't like this story arc as well when I'm reading it all at once because there's not much that happens in it, and it, like, grinds the uh, overall narrative to a halt when you have to, like, then stop and watch him die for four issues. And the art, I really like the artist, but the art is really bland. A lot of browns, grays, and uh, like autumn colors in it, and not a whole lot of variation in that. But on its own, I think it's fucking awesome. It's just not, probably not as good when you're reading the entirety of the series, which was a fun experiment, but I probably wouldn't recommend. <laughs> <laughs> and would, would you say that this is a good place to start for newbies to the character? Yeah, it. I would say it probably doesn't hurt to have some 
base knowledge of the character, just to know who he is. I think I think I actually did read the first issue of Hellblazer before I read this, which is just part one of like a four part story, so it doesn't really help you at all. But but like knowing the character, knowing that he's a con man and a chain smoker and that he's had dealings with uh, demonic characters and whatnot, well, that's probably all you need for the for the story. And it's it's a reason it's one of the few Hellblazer books that's been uh, put out on graphic novel on its own back in the day. Like now, pretty much the whole series has been put into a, a collected edition. But back then, it was like this and uh, Original Sins, which was the first like five issues. You didn't see a whole lot of Hellblazer being being collected back then. So on that note, it's kind of interesting. A character like like you said that is um, has a really wry sense of humor mm-hmm. and has seen so much of the supernatural and uh, otherworldly things is afraid of death, is uh-huh. afraid, of, afraid of his own mortality. Yeah, exactly. And that, that's one of the things I loved about the character so much is that he's a chain smoker, knows that that's going to kill him, but uh, doesn't stop. <laughs> and he's got that addict personality, and I, I, I love that about him. Like. I, I, in the movie adaptation, Constantine with Keanu Reeves, they loosely adapt dangerous habits, but they give the reasoning for John's life, you know, his demon hunting and all that. Um, his, the reasoning is completely opposite as to the comic. Like in the movie, he tried to kill himself when he was a kid, and so now he's trying to like earn his way back into heaven by stopping the bad guys or whatever which in the comic like he like he knows that's where he's going to end up eventually but but to be a part of this world to him is just an addiction it's just another another facet of his addict addicted addictive personality <laughs> that's a hard word to say <laughs> <laughs> so for our listeners who if you're out there and for me because I like to hear you talk about it uh can you expand a little bit more on what is it about this character that really touches you and has made you stay with him as opposed to other Vertigo characters? I've asked myself that same question and specifically why so many other people like this character. Because John Constantine isn't like an A-list character. Created in Swamp Thing, got his own spinoff in Hellblazer, but at the same time, like he's not, he's not a character like Superman or Batman. The average person is going to notice on the street. Just a blonde dude in a trench coat. And every time I find out that like some writer used him in a story or that somebody's a huge fan of the character, I'm always like, really? Like, you've heard of him? <laughs> because it seems like he's not that, that big of a character, when in reality he is. And one of the things I really like about him is just his humanity. Um, he's flawed. He can be a bit of a dickhead on occasion. He's a drunkard, can't keep a relationship to save his life. But at the end of the day, he's more than likely going to do the right thing when pushed. Um, he saved the world a few times um, at the expense of a lot of his friends. That's another thing. He, I think he's only ever had one friend to survive their friendship. He uses people like human shields pretty consistently. And I think that's what I like about him, is that he's relatable, but, but he's not perfect, but he's also not terrible. Like The word anti-hero gets thrown around, Especially like these days when you've got movies like like Joker trying so hard to humanize like evil characters, and he's not good or evil; he's just human. And you don't need to humanize somebody who already has strengths and flaws. Like he's he's just a person. 
And it's really interesting to see that put into like the black and white morality of heaven and hell, you know. And I, I really like his rejection of that morality, black and white, you know. Um, this idea that humanity would be better off if we just kept to ourselves and didn't have to deal with gods and demons and all that. So who do you think, uh, would it be Grant Morrison then, who you feel has done the the strongest interpretation of the character since it was his baby for a while? You mean, wait, Grant Morrison? You mean... What, who, did I say Grant Morrison? Yeah. Oh. Alan Moore? <laughs> what did you, who'd you mean? <laughs> um, what, what's his name? Um, Ellis? Or uh, Ennis? Yes, Ennis? yes, oh, yes. Okay. Excuse me. Yeah, he's been... Uh, so I so the character's created by Alan Moore in Swamp Thing. Only used a few issues, and then his ongoing book was originally written by uh, Jamie Delano, who kind of fleshed out the character's backstory, its history, um, and fine-tuned his personality. And then there were a few other writers, like Grant Morrison, actually wrote a couple issues before Delano stepped away. And then Garth Ennis took over and kind of rounded him out even more while adding a fair amount of his own personality into it. And did you know Garth Ennis was only, like, 20 when he was writing this book? No way. Yeah. So his first published work was republished by Vertigo called True Faith. And I think it was published in 89. And he was, like, 17 when he wrote that. Oh. fucking unfair. It is. It is. <laughs> I, I actually recently read that book just a few weeks ago. And it's... It's fine, um, and he kind of, like, cops to some of his teenage provoclivities in there. Like, it's, it's not a great work, but it's for a 17-year-old. It's far better than I could have done when I was 17. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I, I, think, I think Ennis did a really good job of fleshing out the character, but I think the majority of that work and that praise goes to Jamie Delano, the initial writer on the book. So... Going back to a previous question here, for again, those people who are like, well, I'm interested, this sounds like a very intriguing character, but I don't know where to start. Like, what do you think is probably the best introduction to the character? Um, probably, I, it sounds weird, but probably like a guest spot, like that issue of Sandman that he's in, or his first appearance in Swamp Thing. I believe it's issue 37 of Saga of the Swamp Thing, where he's just kind of the dude in the shadows that you want to know more about. Um, and then from there, uh, there's there's a lot to choose from. There's, like, the new 52 version of the character, which I can't stand, but has its fans. Um, there's a DC Rebirth version called Hellblazer. I think it was just, it was just called Hellblazer. But anyway, uh, I'm not as big on the mo- more modern versions. Oh, but then there's also a brand new one, started in November, called uh, Sandman Universe Hellblazer, which takes the character back to its more Vertigo roots, and it ties in the new story in with Books of Magic, uh, when you see John in the future. Um, it like picks up during that scene where he's dying, and then ties it into this new ongoing series. And there's even a cameo of the uh, Keanu Reeves, John Constantine, in it. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a fun book. But, but yeah, I, I don't know. There's a, there's a lot of starting and stopping points for the character. So I would say start with his Wikipedia page. <laughs> Read through that, see what sounds the best. But the, I think probably the most iconic story of the character is Dangerous Habits. That's probably as best as you're going to get from boiling down the character to his like base and his uh, beliefs and fears and all that. 
the essence of who he is. Yeah, there you go. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, I'm going to skip around a little bit here, but this actually pertains to your character. Let's dive into Lucifer. Lucifer was one of those that I, well, kind of like you said, like cameos, because mm-hmm. he first appeared in Sandman. Yeah. And that's probably where I first saw him. And then um, I can't remember who did the cover art, but I think it's volume two. It's the one where he looks pretty much exactly like David Bowie and he's holding like a wine glass and you can see his wings coming out and he's looking right at you. It's a beautiful cover. I know the cover you're talking about. Uh, Wait, uh, so this is from the Lucifer ongoing series? Yes, I think it's like volume two or volume three. Um, It was just absolutely gorgeous. And I saw it in a comic ship. Comic ship? Wish there was comic (laughs) ships. That would be fantastic. (laughs) I would take that cruise. No, comic shop. And I was like, I have to read that. I have to see what that's all about. But there he is. There he is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's holding a martini. Yes. His wings. You know what's funny about this cover? In college, that was my screen like profile picture for a, like MSN Messenger. Remember back in the day? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that picture of Lucifer <laughs> holding a dirty martini. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. You could do far worse. <laughs> but he's such an interesting character. Um, I think... I'm going to mispronounce uh, this guy's last name. I always do. Mike Dringenberg. Is it Dringenberg? I think it's Dringenberg. Dringenberg. I think it's a hard G, but I don't know. <laughs> Jesus, I've seen it written a million times. Right, <laughs> I've right. said it. <laughs> Me too. But uh, him and Sam Keith, mm-hmm. and Sam Keith is also has worked on one of my favorite comics, uh, not Vertigo, but The Max. Mm-hmm. I can't remember what publishing house that is. I think it was Image. Okay. Doesn't matter, but love it. Great comic. But anyway, just how this character, um, I think actually he and Constantine are a lot alike in some Mm -hmm. ways, in that uh, he is like Constantine, he's not the typical superhero in the sense that um, he's not the muscle guy, he's not going to come in and beat anybody up, he doesn't fight unless he really has to. He's more that character that one of the reasons I, I... I think most people are attracted to him. I won't speak for all comic fans, but myself, it's like he's he's so invested in his goals, yet he's so removed from them, seemingly, that um, the the people in his sphere, the other characters, he does use them, but he also cares like the the few people that are in his his immediate circle. He cares very much about them, but at the same time. I don't even want to say that he manipulates them because basically he's a character that tells you the truth. Like if you read a lot of the comics, he tells you the truth and he tells you what's going to happen. And then people just kind of hoist themselves on their own petard, so to speak. (laughs) And he's just a really cool character that way. I think one one huge difference between him and Constantine is uh, he doesn't bluff. Mm. Constantine has always got a con going. So like one of the things I really like about the Vertigo shared whatever DC universe in general is like the use of magic and how magic always has a cost. And Constantine would rather bluff his way out of something than actually like use magic. And I don't necessarily think he's worried about the cost. It's just like a pain in the ass for him. Whereas for Lucifer, I think he'll gladly pay the cost if he has to, but uh, it's just easier to rely on his reputation. Mm -hmm. You know, like I'm, I, I rule hell. Get out of my face. <laughs> <laughs> that, 
that's kind of funny because in that sense, I could, I think you could argue that Constantine is more like the stereotypical version we have of Satan. Oh, definitely. Who manipulates and and lies. Yeah. Whereas Lucifer, you know, he he's kind of sick of that. Yeah. He's just like, oh, I don't force anybody to do anything. Yeah, I, I love that scene in Sandman where he uh, is going off about his reputation, where right? he says like, you know. Uh, I always hear these people saying, oh, the devil made me do it. And he's like, what What use do I have with a soul? Like, how, why would I need that? <laughs> like, you did it because you wanted to do it. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he tired of being a scapegoat, mm-hmm. which we can make a whole other uh, episode about the new 52 and what they do to that. I haven't um, even, I'm not even aware. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually, I actually prefer the Netflix show to the new 52 version of Lucifer. Is Lucifer even in the new 52? Like, is there a version of the devil in the new 52? I, they call I him Lucifer. Oh, Jesus. I and, wasn't aware of that. <laughs> well, and some fans have tried to jump to the defense of, this incarnation like oh no 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 this is this is, it really isn't lucifer morning star it's you know i don't know his some dude calling himself lucifer like the offspring of lucifer yeah. and some japanese demon that he had you know a tryst with or some such thing and it's like well i call teradiddle on that <laughs> because it's just why why would you reinvent a lucifer character and call it lucifer there's so many other things you yeah. can call him but anyhow before i go down that I'm really <laughs> excited uh, there's quite a few books I like, like The Wolf Beneath the Tree. That's a good one. Volume, I think it is. I think it is volume two. Uh, but it's a really good book. It's very. I love the art again, uh, the way they created the character and Neil Gaiman just no no qualms about it. He's like, I want him to look like David Bowie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Especially those first few issues. When reading that that introductory issue. Sandman, was it like issue two or three? Whenever it is, he goes to hell. And he meets Lucifer for the first time. When I read that as a kid, having no real knowledge of David Bowie, I thought uh, Lucifer was female. Mm. Like, I, I thought it was a woman. And I was like, oh, interesting. It's a bold take on the devil. Like, uh, but, I mean, you know, he can look however he wants, so I guess that makes sense. And then it wasn't until, like, years later, reading back, I'm like, oh, no, he's, that's just David Bowie. <laughs> <laughs> Bowie would actually be very pleased by yeah, that. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Initially. Yeah, he's a very beautiful man. Another topic of conversation. <laughs> but another interesting thing about Lucifer, I understand that it has a very consistent art team, like Ryan Kelly and Peter Gross, and occasionally, um, what was his name? I have it written down. Dean, Dean Ormston? Could be. Like he's no. st- <laughs> <laughs> This, but, is, this is the area where you f- know far more about it than me, because I've not read all of Lucifer, and aside from the, the initial Mike Carey miniseries, it's been years since I've read any of the ongoing. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's what makes the comic so just, I guess, unique in that the art team for Lucifer has been pretty consistent down the line, and so the style looks the same. I'm not sure who does the lettering, but... And I know that's, that has changed for characters over the years. Like, it had, uh, each character had their own unique lettering at first. Oh, yeah. And uh, Lucifer is the only one who's kept his over time. You know that. I, I, huh. I think so. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. But did you ever hear uh, Neil Gaiman's thing about Mazikeen? I tell. No. So, so when he originally created Mazikeen, which uh, she is Lucifer's, what, best friend, buddy? 
lover. But yep, yeah, exactly. <laughs> she's just always there by his side. So when he first created her, she only has half a face, and she speaks in like a weird, like a person that only has half a face. <laughs> the like when her writing is phonetic or her uh, lines are phonetic, so it's like <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, when he first wrote that, he was like, "Oh, that's fine. She's only going to be in a couple of pages, so who cares?" And then when he found out that there was going to be an ongoing series, and he was like, "Oh shit!" <laughs> like if I if I realized this character was going to be in multiple issues, I would have not started with that. I actually made it so you can understand what she's saying. <laughs> well, they did have to eventually do yeah. that. <laughs> no, that's that's interesting. That explains a lot. And uh, but she's in a, a, another aspect of the comic that I really love. Just their relationship and their dynamic, and that's another cool thing about the comic is that there's quite a few, uh, there's quite a few books where Lucifer is just not there, mm-hmm. or he's on the fringe and watching you know everyone do what they do, and so that way a lot of other characters like um, oh his niece Elaine Blanc and Mazikeen and David Easterman I think is his name. How much was Amenadiel in the comic? Oh. He's, he's in that first volume, like, really briefly, and then I don't think I ever saw him again when, when I was reading. He's in there quite a bit, and he's another one who I... It's just fun to watch Lucifer mess with him, basically, yeah. because uh, he has... Amadiel, excuse me, has such a strong opinion, of course, about, well, God's will, God's work, mm-hmm. your duties as God's... Uh, Fallen angel, da 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 da, and pretty much every time Lucifer is like, nope, and <laughs> it, there's a lot of uh, um, subversive humor. Yeah, it's not laugh out loud, but you watch the guy and you're like, yeah, he does have a pretty good sense of humor about how everything plays out. So it's just a fun book. Well, fun isn't really the right word. It's a very investing book. Yeah. I also really like that Vertigo. In DC, and really, I guess this goes down to it's actually goes down to some uh, oh, just like executive issues, but um, behind the scenes issues, I guess. But I like the de- delineation between Lucifer and the devil because biblically, there's really no basis for Lucifer being the ruler of hell. That's Milton, you know, John Milton wrote that uh, in uh, Paradise, Paradise Lost, Lost yeah, um, which obviously is not. Not like biblically canon, but uh, but it's just a fun story. And but so many writers and artists have taken that and just ascribed that role to Lucifer. And in the comic books, the first of the fallen and Lucifer are two different characters. That all has to do with just behind the scenes shit. Because in Hellblazer, they needed the devil, but Lucifer was already tied up in Sandman and the whole selling hell and all that. So they're like, well, shit, we can't use that Lucifer. Because that Lucifer isn't the same character as you need of like a mustache-twirling ruler of hell. <laughs> so then they created the First of the Fallen and gave him a new backstory, which biblically actually makes way more sense. <laughs> On that note, I've heard uh, several fans say this in forums, and it would be interesting to hear your opinion. Is Peter Stormar in Constantine, is he Lucifer? Because there's some people who think yeah. that he is. Well, he's clearly modeled on First of the Fallen, mm-hmm. but it's Lucifer. Because the theology of the movie Constantine is so stripped down. You know, it's like religion for dummies. Um, <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's clearly supposed to be Lucifer, the devil, First of the Fallen. It's all the same person. But there's a line in the movie 
where when John first meets him, he says, hey, Lou. Mm. Oh, so I forgot about that. The movie says it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. And Peter Stormare was one of the highlights of that movie. Yeah, him and Tilda Swinton, I've said multiple times, uh, feel like they're in a different movie. <laughs> those two those two are great, and just they're like diamonds and just this pile of shit. <laughs> They're trying. They're really coming. You know, you know what the problems with diamonds and a pile of shit is, though. It's is a pile it, of shit. Well, it doesn't. It's only it makes the shit better. <laughs> no. You just you just get shitty diamonds. <laughs> I stole that analogy from Rachel Harris. Rachel Harris. Uh, she's a comedian. She's actually oh. on the Lucifer TV series. I think she used that years ago to <laughs> describe Britney Spears and Kevin Federline. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. Okay, <laughs> handing the mic over to you. <laughs> okay, I'm on my next one. I'm not going to talk about this one very long because it's been a while since I've read it, and uh, I don't want to spoil the mystery of it. Um, so my next one, and did I already say this? We're going to do five each. I don't know, whatever. We're doing five <laughs> each. <laughs> so the next book on my list is Mystery Play by Grant Morrison, art by John Muth. Muth? I don't know how to pronounce that. But it's a, it's a mystery whodunit. So it's all about this detective trying to solve who killed the actor who plays God during a mystery play. From there, it, it kind of spins out into something wildly different than you'd expect from just a regular uh, police procedural. And again, I don't want to talk too much about it because I'd, I'd rather actually read the book again and dig into it for one of these episodes. <clears throat> but it's cool, it's fun, it's some early Grant Morrison, well, it's 94, so I guess it's not that early in his career, but early enough. And he's one of my favorite writers, just a just a crazy wizard, <laughs> 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 writes some great, like, Doom Patrol, and he wrote Sebastian O, which was one of those uh, the Vertigo Touchmark books I mentioned earlier. And yeah, I don't know, I don't have a whole lot to say about it at the moment, but I'd like to get into it more eventually. And it is a standalone, you said. Yeah, it's just a graphic novel. I don't mean to uh, reduce it down, but in, in the most simple metaphor I can think of, it sounds like a fabulous combination of like community theater and mystery. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's some specific movie it reminds me of, but I can't remember now. But the art is all like watercolor style. It reminds me of the art in one of the volumes of Books of Magic, and I can't remember which now. The Books of Magic, the original miniseries, each issue was drawn by a different artist. Okay. Well, I want to read it now. Sounds most interesting. Okay, we're going to backtrack on my list a little bit and go back to Tank Girl. Yeah. And, oh, Tank Girl. So... You, you probably know she was created by Jamie Hewitt. Yeah. And uh, I want to say, I want to say Alan, uh, Alan Martin. Martin. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you. Yes, that's the one. And um, I, I did actually, you know, we were talking earlier about uh, you were thinking about certain books and whatnot. Yeah. I was actually able to think of one with Tank Girl, and that is Tank Girl, The Odyssey. Uh-huh who actually Alan Martin stepped out of writing for this one and Peter Milligan stepped in. Ah. And uh, it is actually a structured and linear Tank Girl story, which usually, like, Tank Girl is not. Yeah. Um, and that's one of the things that attracted me to her at first is that you, you can pretty much... 
it doesn't matter what page of a Tank Girl comic you open up to, because even if you start at the beginning, you still probably won't understand what's going yeah. on halfway through. And so it, uh, Odyssey is basically exactly like it sounds. It's like a punk rock rendition of Homer's Odyssey. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> and so her, uh, her boyfriend um, is a mutant kangaroo. Yeah. Named Booga. <laughs> yeah. I remember her from the movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And he is, um, he is swayed by this Hollywood agent to uh, become a movie star. And she has to go after him and get him back, basically. She runs into this goth rock band called The Sirens who try to lure her away. And there's this hotel um, in keeping with like the Cyclops from the Odyssey. There's a hotel that only takes payment in eyeballs. Nice. And uh, there, there are some Tank Girl fans who they don't like the fact that this is linear, and they feel like Peter Milligan did a poor job of capturing like the heart of Tank Girl. Yeah. I disagree. Like, if you're just coming to the series and you haven't read Tank Girl before, I feel like this is a good place to start because there is a beginning, middle, and end, but it still has a very what's how do you anarchic? Am I saying that correctly? Yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, just kind of a, a this crazy <laughs> uh, ambience to it that I think very much honors the original. The original is black and white, mm -hmm. and the way it's drawn, and I know that um, Martin and Hewlett weren't the first to do this, but like, you know, she turns around and she addresses the reader a mm -hmm. lot, she breaks the fourth wall. Yeah, yeah. The panels are broken, like if she's going on a bender or an acid trip, then like she'll fall out of the panel or there'll be characters who like, they step into yeah. the next page. Just weird stuff like that. And one of the reasons I really, really enjoy her is, uh, get on my soapbox a little bit, <laughs> is that like growing up, um, I read Wizard Magazine a lot too, and uh, a lot of traditional superhero comics. All fantastic. I still love them. Still have a soft spot in my heart for them, particularly the X-Men. But even like as a kid and growing up and becoming a teenager and then a young woman, I was very much aware that like like the X-Men, for example, and don't come for me on this, anyone who's listening. <laughs> but um, yes, they're very empathetic and they're sympathetic, oh, well, sympathetic characters. And you understand their struggles. But at the same time, particularly with the women, they're all drawn the same. Yeah. And you get the idea that maybe with the exception of uh, Maro, you're like, well, you know, you guys, I know it's hard being a mutant and that you, people are persecuting you, but I feel like you'd have a really good secondary career as a supermodel. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, like, some, like someone like Psylocke, you know, yes. who, like a busty ninja yeah. who, oh no, you can make psychic swords. That's, that's so terrible. Right. But you're gorgeous <laughs> and you can create a purple sword. Exactly. <laughs> or, exactly. Or, yeah. I mean, like even, even Cyclops, like, you know, he's wearing sunglasses, like his, his mutant power, you know, obviously optic blast or whatever, but his mutant power is that like you have, you have to wear cool sunglasses all the time. <laughs> yeah. Poor darling. <laughs> and you get to date a really hot redhead. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so Tank Girl was one of the first characters I remember where Hewlett and Martin, they pretty much do everything they can to make her unattractive. Yeah. Like, she's very annoying. She has a really uh, dark sense of humor. She says the most inappropriate things at the most inappropriate times. 
there's like there the way they draw her like some of the the uh the earlier work i can't remember what it was called but it was basically like tank girl pinup mm-hmm. and when you first see her she you know she, she's cute she has the whole punk rock thing going on but then when you get into the comic like they unabashedly draw her in like a pool of her own vomit <laughs> and she farts and she burps and she's just all these things that traditionally comic book females are not yeah there's really nothing refined about her and i kind of find that refreshing yeah definitely yeah so i mean anyone who wants to get into that comic i would say go for it but i feel like the odyssey is a good place to start if you like more traditional storytelling so there's only been a couple tank girl volumes published by vertigo the odyssey was the first and i think it was also the first it was in color yes and then so there looks like there was the odyssey apocalypse and then the movie adaptation, which I actually, I think, maybe that wasn't where to go. I just remember when I was doing my Yearblazer run last year, there was ads in the Hellblazer comics for the Tank Girl movie adaptation. And I can't remember if it was actually by Vertigo or if I'm just conflating that in my mind because I was reading a Vertigo comic. But <laughs> at least two volumes are, are Vertigo. It started with, let me look it up real quick. I can't remember. So I went Deadline Magazine, then it moved to Dark Horse, then IDW for a while, and I know now it's at Titan, um, which is a British publisher. And Titan has been republishing all of the old stuff since it looks like 2009. But yeah. Girl. I'm glad she found a home. <laughs> <laughs> well, and she's back home with some Brits now. There you go. Yes, yes. I think it was Hewlett who described her as something like, you know, a beefer of a girl. And I still don't even a know. A beefer. A beefer, yeah. <laughs> I still don't even know. Exactly what beefer, Ike? Yeah. <laughs> something like that. <laughs> I like that. Oh, so so the movie adaptation. Did you, did you like Lori Petty? in the role? Yes. See, I can't read anything Tangirl and not hear her voice. <laughs> so I feel like whether or not the movie's good or bad, whether or not it's like a cult favorite or a piece of trash, I, f- I feel like they got the casting of that like dead on. Especially mid to late 90s punk rock Lori Petty. Like I, I love that. I was actually a few weeks ago talking to uh, one of my friends who works at the comic shop in town about Tank Girl. If there was a modern adaptation, who should play? Oh. oh. And he, so I, I, I hadn't thought of that at all. Apparently Margot Robbie is really interested in it. But he suggested, and I, I hadn't thought of this until he mentioned it, and the more, the more I thought about it, the more I liked it. He suggested Kristen Stewart. Really? Yeah. That's interesting. And then I was thinking about the movie Underwater. Have you seen that one? I haven't seen that one yet. No. She's got like short, like buzzed blonde hair in it. And she doesn't really have a Tank Girl vibe, but she's all dirty through most of it. And I, as soon as he said that, I was like, yeah, I could totally see that. Well, that would be a more interesting choice than Margot Robbie. Yeah. No offense. I mean, no offense to her, but I kind of feel like she would be the obvious choice yeah. just based on her looks alone. But no, I, that could be fun. I am. Hopefully. Fingers crossed. Yeah. We'll see. <laughs> all righty. Okay. On to my next one. So... I picked a reference book for mine, which is Vertigo Visions. Yes. So this is a book that came out in mid-2000s, I want to say like 2005 or so. It's just an art book full of Vertigo covers, a little bit of commentary. I was in college. I worked at a library on campus, 
and uh, a couple of days a week I had to work in the creative arts library where I was like the only staff there and I'd open and close and all that. And they had a copy of this and uh, I used to check it out just religiously and like sit up at the front and just flip through it and look at the art. And I remember specifically, I checked it out and I was walking across campus holding it. And I remember thinking to myself, I want to, I want to get every Vertigo book I can. <laughs> like because of the art in this book, I decided that I was going to try to track down and own every single Vertigo comic that I could. And I remember having that realization that like, this is what I love. Marvel, DC, Image, whatever. Vertigo's where it's at. And, like, just thumbing through it right now, there's just some fucking amazing art in there of every Vertigo series to date. I mean, to date 2005 or whatever that was. Oh, this 1993 one for Swamp Thing is gorgeous. Yeah, for sure. And you are well on your way now, I think, to to, uh, uh, succeeding in your goal. Yeah, I'm getting there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is beautiful. I mean... And actually, some of the art in it is quite ugly, but it's all compelling. Well, yeah, exactly. And that's, that's kind of the point, I think, to some of it, is the grotesqueness of these stories and characters. Now, see, and this kind of brings up another interesting topic in the sense of people who think that they don't like comic books for whatever reason. Yeah. Like, you could see this hanging on someone's wall. Oh, yeah, exactly. And they would have no idea that it was associated with the comic book, but, you know, you being in the know. Yeah. Ha, ha, ha. Yeah, look at the, I mean, look at the art of uh, Dave McKean. Or uh, John Bolton, or I mean, that's a, those are McKean pieces right yeah. there. They uh, could very easily, you know, be in uh, any art gallery. But I mean, re- realistically, that's also belittling to regular comic book artists. Any yes, any right. comic book art. I've I've seen some some shitty comic art throughout my life. And I'd say even the worst comic art that got published could still, on some level, be be hanging on someone's wall. Yes. You're right. No, excuse me. I don't mean to belittle yeah, other Well, no, people. and I, it wasn't you. That was just... that Because that's the thinking that people have, I think. Mm-hmm. Is, if, it's, if it's a cartoonish style comic book drawing, then it's not high art. Right. <laughs> I mean, but at the same time, I think Vertigo marries those two styles of like the traditional comic book art with more, quote, sophisticated art. And writing. The original kind of subtitle for Swamp Thing back in the 80s was Sophisticated Suspense. Oh, I like that. Anyway, there's not, there's not a whole lot to say about this one either because it's just all visual. So uh, people listening, just track down Vertigo Visions. Look at some of the pictures online. Or I don't know. I'm sure this book's long out of print. So <laughs> good <laughs> luck finding a copy, losers. <laughs> and I'm just getting distracted by it. I'm like, oh, that's... That's fascinating. That's really good. Makes me actually want to read more of the titles. They also show off some of the cards from the uh, Vertigo card series. If you just saw one at Clericon. Wait, never mind. <laughs> I, saw, I saw one for Dead yeah, earlier. Oh, there it is. There it is. Is it Clericon? Falconer. Nah, never mind. No, close. No. <laughs> Looks like him with the blonde hair. And it's just, yeah, this is a gorgeous book. This is easily one that you could just sit down yeah. and, oh, yeah. It's a good issue of Shade the Changing Man. There's this one cover of Shade the Changing Man that I love where it's just him standing there and he looks like a beetle or something. He does. And I've always loved, so that, that's, the, that's the example I always point to whenever I'm forced at gunpoint to describe Byronic. <laughs> <laughs> this one comes that, up. That look is a very Byronic look. Was it Shade the Changing Man, issue number 51? Okay. And, you know, the colors are just absolutely gorgeous. And (laughs) 
loving comics and loving fashion, like I look at Shave the Changing Man and I'm like, I'd wear that. I would. Ah, <laughs> oh, really cool book. Really cool book. Okay. Well, on that yep. note then, since we're talking about resources for Vertigo Comics, of course, you know, you got to talk about the Vertigo Encyclopedia. For people who are listening, and uh, it's kind of going back again to people who think that they're not into comics for whatever reason, that they couldn't be into comics, sometimes it's just that it feels really overwhelming. You yeah, know, you hear, sure. you hear people talk about, you know, this incarnation of a character or this book, and it's just like, oh my god, where to start? Fear not. Salvation <laughs> lies within. Uh, I think if you're interested in Vertigo comics and you're not sure where to start, like, you could just get a copy of the Vertigo Encyclopedia, and again, you can probably look it up online, and just flip through and see what catches your eye and see what interests you. And there's plenty, but uh, it's not like you have to start at the beginning and work your way up. If you see a character or you see a book that you think looks uh, intriguing or speaks to your aesthetic, there's probably something in here for you. Yeah. And uh, that goes whether you like fantasy or whether you like politics or adventure or mystery or all of the above. Yeah, it's just a, it's a good basis with which to explore and come back again. Yeah, and in the mid in the mid two thousands, there was a, a couple of volumes of these comic book encyclopedias. There was a Marvel one, a DC one, and then a few months later, oh, this is two thousand eight. That was like two thousand five. Um, <laughs> anyway, so there was a Marvel one, a DC one, and then a Vertigo encyclopedia. And the Marvel and DC encyclopedias, which I own those as well, they were all very character focused. Uh, you know, B for Batman. As for Superman, you know, go through alphabetically and find your characters and read a little blurb about them. But uh, the Vertigo one, Karen Berger said that she she shifted the uh, focus to be story instead of character. So there's not a Constantine entry, there's a Hellblazer entry. And for me, that was a tremendously useful resource of just going through and finding books that I want to read. Like, like I've told you my whole decision that I'm going to truck down all these goddamn Vertigo books if it kills me. And then like a year later, as if from on high, comes down the Vertigo Encyclopedia. So I can just thumb through it and find all these. And I remember about seven or eight years ago, just sitting down with a pen and paper and specifically going through the back section of this, where they just have the short entries on miniseries and, and one shots. And as we were going through this with a pen and paper and writing down every issue that I could find... It's called the, the Gazetteer. Is that how you pronounce that? I think so. Gazetteer, sure. Anyway, um, just going through the, the Gazetteer and <laughs> writing down books like Four Horsemen. It tells you how long the series run was, who the creators are. And so I, you know, I know I only need four issues of that, five issues of that, whatever. And uh, a huge list to go through. And to this day, I'm still drawing from that list. Although now it's just on my phone. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, I'm curious how many titles would you estimate you have left to collect dude i have no idea (laughs) (laughs) okay but like you said a good a good jumping off point to get more invested in the story or the book as opposed to well you know like you said some resources where it's just the character and then you have to try and figure out where you want to jump in on the character's journey. Yeah, exactly. And the, the other encyclopedias are great, but when you're dealing with a character like Batman that's been around for 
60 years, however long it's been. It's, a, it's I guess, a better idea to focus it on him than the book. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. So you can see, okay, here's Batman, here's some key storylines to follow. Because, I mean, no, any new fan of Batman, excuse me, no new fan of Batman is going to go back to, you know, Bob Kane and Bill Finger's original story <laughs> and, and try to read from there to present day. It's fucking ridiculous. <laughs> I feel stupid for even mentioning it, <laughs> but but with Vertigo Comics, like with so many miniseries, like uh, Brave Old World, it's a four issue run, and you know if you can find those four issues, then you'll have the whole story. That's it, self contained. Granted, there are books that have run for for years, and in the the case of Hellblazer, decades, but that's less likely in this universe. That's a good point. And I, I don't think you're, that's a stupid statement to say that because I think what deters a lot of people from comic books, especially as we get older, is that, I mean, I love comic books and I still get overwhelmed. If I think too much about all of the, the history yeah. and what's out there, I can easily just, you know, cancel myself out when I go to the comic shop to pick something up. Whereas... You know, again, this is a good way, this encyclopedia is just a a good way to really go with the flow and find out what works for you, as opposed to thinking, well, if I don't read Hellblazer 1 through 10, then I have no sense of the canon, and people will know I'm a fraud, and (laughs) da-da-da. If you're reading 1 through 10, you're not going to understand 11, which is the Newcastle issue. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Oh, well... Now that we have our resources. Okay, my turn now. Yeah. So this one's an obvious one, and probably, again, I'm not going to talk too much about it because this could easily be its own episode, but uh, Sandman, Preludes and Nocturnes. Mm-hmm. I think it's probably the first Vertigo story that I read. I checked it out from the library. Blew me away. You know, introduction of the uh, Sandman and the Endless, you know, that whole universe, as well as Lucifer Constantine's in it, and an amazing first story. I, I don't know what the word is. <laughs> amazing introduction to that character in that universe. I haven't listened to the Audible audio series yet, but I really like to. I'm waiting for the CD release. Because that's the only Audible audio drama that's gotten a physical release as well. Oh, really? Neil Gaiman specifically requested it. Oh, I didn't know that. Thank you, Neil. Yeah. I actually, I read a funny, like, Twitter feed a few weeks ago where like somebody was bitching at him about teaming up with Amazon for this Sandman release or the, the audio drama. So like, how come you went to Amazon of all places, you know, the, this giant global corporation that's destroying the world and capitalism and democracy and blah, blah, blah. How come you went to them to do this and not like the BBC? And he said like, Hey, I went to the BBC. 30 years ago, and I've gone to them many times since trying to get this off the ground. Like, me and Dirk Maggs, the guy that directed the audio drama. Like, we've gone to them many times. We've gone to many other places to try to get this done. Amazon's literally the only one who said yes. It's so, you know, sorry, but that's the way it is. And then the person just kept coming back at him, like, well, I just don't like that they don't allow physical copies so they can't be in libraries. Well, I specifically wrote it into the contract that this will have a physical copy. Well, I still don't like that they're always trying to stamp down on libraries and this, blah, blah. And he finally ended it with like, listen, here, here's, here's the way it is. I would rather have a Sandman audio drama at Amazon than no Sandman drama, audio drama at all. That's, that's what you're looking at. 
Like that's, that's the way the world is right now. You can either have it or not have it. So it doesn't sound like you want to live in a world where there is a Sandman audio drama. And if that's the way, what you feel, then don't listen to it. Right, right. Henceforth, this is not for you. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, uh, we'll talk more about Sandman eventually. It's a great comic series. It straddles the line of, uh, being something new and wholly original and tied to the extended DC universe. Um, like, especially in that first volume, there's appearances by the Justice League, and Wesley Dodds, the original Sandman from the 1930s, is, shows up briefly. And it's very tied into the history and lore of DC Comics. Hell, there's an extended sequence that takes place at Arkham Asylum from Batman. Um, uh, uh, Scarecrow's in it. You know, <laughs> like, there's all these, all these characters and, and uh, concepts that are tied... Uh, deeply into the DC universe, but you don't need to know anything about them to read it and enjoy it. It probably wouldn't hurt to have some base knowledge in just mythology in general, because <laughs> it's such a literate series. So why this particular Sandman, do you feel? Because it's the first, and it's a very pure look at the, the character, establishes the universe extraordinarily well and very quickly, too. And, and I think it also, it has some, like, horror elements that later volumes don't have as much of. Like, especially that, that 24 hours, that issue that's all in a diner, where the people slowly go crazy and end up murdering each other. Like, that is a fucking gut-wrenching read. <laughs> that, that's scarier than any horror movie I've ever seen. And it's, that, that's, it's just amazing. And, I, yeah, I, I just think it's a, it's a perfect introductory Vertigo read. And anyone could read it and enjoy it. Well, on on that same wavelength, I actually picked a Sandman book too. Well, and <laughs> right, and uh, brief lives. Oh yeah, brief lives. And I took a lot of notes on this one because this one has a lot of feels for me. I am not sure, but didn't Dave McKean do the cover art for this too? Uh, Dave McKeon, I believe, did every issue of Sandman. Oh, did he? Okay, and that's a yes. All I right. think so. I can double check. <laughs> <laughs> yes, please. No, no, no double checking. We no, just no. <laughs> throw out throw out bullshit and stick to your convictions. Absolutely, no. yeah. Again, if we're wrong, you can tell us how wrong we are. Send us an email. Um, it's just such a great book because at its core, it's basically a family drama. Yeah. And it has a lot of development for, um, for characters that we know are part of the Sandman universe, but maybe we didn't know so much about before, like Delirium and Destruction. It's, just, it's also got a, a little bit of humor. Like There's a scene in there, for, for everybody who doesn't know and has never read this, it's a pretty straightforward narrative, I think, in that um, Dream and his siblings... He basically goes on an adventure with his younger sister, Delirium, to find their brother, Destruction. And he initially does it because he just got out of a relationship where he got rejected pretty hardcore. <laughs> and he wants a distraction from his moping. But there's a great scene in the comic book where he's, he's brokenhearted, so he conjures up a rainstorm in which to mope. <laughs> and it's, <laughs> it's such a, a great... A great picture, and it just kind of makes you smile. And Millions of goths just sigh. Right, right. Understanding. <laughs> I get it, Dream. I get it. Yeah. Been there, been there. <laughs> like, you can hear the Smiths playing in the background <laughs> yeah. somewhere. 
it's, it's, it's just kind of a funny book, too. Like, when they eventually find Destruction, who has uh, uh, gone out of his way not to be found, he has this talking dog named Barnabas, yep. who is just iconic and um, <laughs> just provides some great laughs, I think, throughout the book. And it's not, it's not a comedy by any stretch of the imagination, but um, it's just has this subversive humor to it that kind of helps you get through some of the more, I think, uh, I get emotionally painful moments of the mm-hmm. comic. Not to go down another rabbit hole, but to go down another rabbit hole and how I relate to this book. I first discovered it after my brother joined the Navy mm-hmm. in like 2007, 2008. Anyway, I, I, really related to this book because Delirium just wants to find her brother and she's very dependent on her siblings and she just wants them to be a family, get along and do their thing. And when she finds destruction, that's the other thing that's great about this comic is again, the dichotomy of what you think destruction is going to look like versus how he shows up (laughs) in the story. When I first read the book, I hadn't seen destruction before in any of the other comics. I wasn't familiar with what he looked like or what kind of character he was. So I was expecting like some, like the God of war, like clad in armor and really stern and fierce. from the Wonder Woman comics. Exactly, exactly. And then when you meet him, he's basically like this brawny red-headed gentleman who like does bob ross paintings yeah. and <laughs> i always <laughs> i always thought he looked like like brendan gleason like 30 years ago he kind of does yeah. do you remember that um i don't know if you ever saw that musical seven brides for seven brothers <laughs> definitely not speaking my language now. <laughs> you know this this is a very old <laughs> reference but y'all i'm, I'm aware of it i've just never seen it <laughs> Well, basically, he reminds me of, that would be a, a good cross, would be Brendan Gleeson and Howard Keel, uh, like this just red-headed guy who walks through the forest and sings in this very beautiful bass baritone. <laughs> and that's kind of where the comedy comes in, too, is because you're not, you're expecting him to be one way, and he's the exact opposite. Instead of being this being of destruction, as we would think he is, he actually, he creates for the sake mm-hmm. of creation, and he writes bad poetry, <laughs> and that's where Barnabas comes in, because Barnabas is like his little critic, like, you know, he recites a poem that he wrote, and Barnabas is like, well, thank goodness it wasn't that long, you know? <laughs> at least it was short. <laughs> at, least, yes, at least it was short, yes. <laughs> and there's moments like that throughout the book that just kind of make you chuckle. Anyway, to come full circle... I really related to the comic book because I really missed my brother and I wanted him there. Like I knew that him going into the Navy was the best thing for him and it was his life. But at the same time, I had this really strong feelings of, of jealousy that he was exploring this new avenue and that I couldn't go with him and that he, he wasn't there in the role I expected him to fill as my older brother. Like you need to be there. And of course him going off and doing his own thing and, getting to know himself better, which is Destruction's main goal, mm-hmm. is to, uh, and which in some ways embodies the best qualities I think any of us could strive for, is you know just trying to understand yourself so that you have more mastery of yourself, basically. Heal thyself. Heal thyself, exactly, exactly. And he does, and he does. And I also like the truths that he drops on Dream in terms of their duties and, well, you know, basically their own 
inevitable destruction. Like, you know, they think of the, they all think of themselves, these entities as these beings who will go on forever. Endless. Yeah. Endless. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And he basically, you know, not a, not a rude or cruel way, but he's basically like, no, that's not what's going to happen. I think dream is, is afraid of that. And it's not very often we see him afraid in the comics. I distinctly remember where I was when I first read this. Like, I had checked out the graphic novel from the library, and I was on a family trip, Nampa, Idaho, visiting relatives there. And I just remember in the guest room I was staying, and I remember uh, spending long nights laying in bed reading that, (laughs) (laughs) just ignoring whatever family thing we were doing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, understandably so. It's a a very engaging comic. It pulls you right in. I remember immediately being sucked into Destruction. Like, he immediately became my favorite of the Endless, just because of that, the humanity of him. I think other than Death, he's the one who has, like, the least difference in his speaking bubble. Everyone in the Endless has a unique font and design of their speech bubbles. And his has a broad border, but the words are just regular comic font or whatever. And I think the only other one is death. I think hers are just regular, unchanged. And so because of that, he's always felt the most human to me of the of the endless, even more so than death because he looks human. Death still has like the goth body and the little tattoo on her eye. Whereas he could be mistaken for just any dude on the street. Right. Yeah, he really does look like the guy who helps kittens out of trees and yeah. you know, opens doors for older ladies. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I, just, I love that for him because it's almost like he's trying too hard to be human mm-hmm. at the expense of, of ignoring his family. You know, it's, again, he's working on himself. And I, I like that you see the two sides of that. You see like him desperately wanting to better himself. And then you see Delirium just desperately wanting him back. And they both have valid viewpoints even though they're at odds. And it's interesting, I think, too, uh, at the end of the comic, like, Delirium is the one, even though she's not happy with it and she wants him to come back with them, like, she gets it. Yeah. She gets it. Whereas Dream is a little bit more just puzzled. Yeah. Like, he doesn't understand. Or if he does have some comprehension of understanding, it's disturbing to him. Yeah. yeah. I like in a lot of ways, Dream is the least human of the Endless. Mm. And the whole series is almost about him being forced to acknowledge his humanity. And then, did you ever read Endless Nights, the 11th volume of Sandman? No. That one kind of shows the moment that caused him to kind of close himself off. Again, because it's dream, all comes down to, uh, like, unrequited love. (laughs) Or maybe it's him getting dumped. I can't remember. So it's a really good storyline. It takes place as the universe is being created. And you get to see all these, uh, Rao, the red son of Krypton, hanging out with Saul, the yellow son of Earth. (laughs) <laughs> like the the kind of embodiments of them. I'll have to read that one. Oh wait, was de- was destruction in that one like momentarily? Yeah, Endless Nights is seven stories, each one focusing on a different endless. Okay. So destruction has its own story in there. Actually, uh, my copy of that was autographed by Neil Gaiman. <sighs> I met him back, geez, twelve years ago or something, in Helena, Montana, of all places. <laughs> <laughs> Now you're flexing. You're making me jealous. <laughs> Do you still have that? Yep. It's in my room. Okay, we're going to have to look he, at that. He drew a little picture of Dream inside of it. <laughs> okay. we're, we're looking at that yeah. when this is over. <laughs> I have to pick that one up. 
All right, so last on my list is Terminal City, which is a mini-series from the 90s. It's this really cool, retro-futuristic, art deco city. The storyline itself, it's, it's fun and, and like a cool kind of noir-ish, action-y story. But just the design of everything, I fucking love. Like, I love art deco buildings and uh, kind of odd design. And to see that in this book, like, the cover of the first issue is, is just a welcome sign to Terminal City with a giant close-up of, like, a giant statue's head with a big globe in the background. Like, I don't even know how to describe it and do it justice because <laughs> it's such a cool look. Like, it looks like something out of, uh, out of Batman and Robin, the movie. It does, yeah. Which is art deco pushed to the fucking extremes. <laughs> <laughs> but, anyway, the original Terminal City was uh, six issues. It was written by Dean Motter with art by Michael Lark. It retains that same visual flair throughout it. There was a sequel called Aerial Graffiti about a uh, skywriter that would just write lewd messages <laughs> across the city. <laughs> that was it. Just yeah, exactly. Yeah, that was Aerial Graffiti. <laughs> and I thought that was a really cool idea for like to pin a story on. Um, and yeah, and I hope to we read these in the future too because it's been a while since I've reread them. So Terminal City technically isn't a Vertigo book anymore. Because when it, after it concluded, it was bought by uh, I think Dark Horse, and they have published both miniseries as one called the Complete Terminal City, but Complete spelled weird, it's spelled C O M P L E A T. Huh. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know why, <laughs> but uh, the Complete Terminal City is pretty easy to find nowadays. In fact, I think I read it originally like that from the Spokane Library. <laughs> I sat in the library and read it while it was uh, one of my old jobs. I was at the library quite a bit, and I sat there and read the first two volumes that way. You just managed to connect with some really great libraries. Yeah, well, I'm telling you. I think a lot of people don't connect libraries with comic books. Mm-hmm. You know, they think either reference or just novels. The, even the Spokane Library has a pretty decent graphic novel section. There's a little, uh, like, kind of bookshop at the front of the library downtown. Um, I think it's called the Friends of the Library, where they'll sell overstock books. But they also have a free box. And I remember going there one time and finding a bunch of issues of Eddie Campbell's Bacchus in the uh, free box. I grabbed those. There's a few other things, like one of the Star Wars omnibus comics I got there in the free box. Oh, man. Yeah, there's some great stuff there. Eddie Campbell's Bacchus. I wish it was a Vertigo comic because I'd fucking love to talk about that. <laughs> it's a cool series. What, uh, what comic is it? Uh, it's gone through a few different publishers. I, I don't even remember where it originated or what editions I have. I, I don't know who published them. But anyway, it's a cool story about, literally about Bacchus. <laughs> Excellent. But it was originally published as, uh, it wasn't called Bacchus. It was called Deadface. Deadface. Because Bacchus... Even though he's mortal, he's aged. <laughs> and it's really interesting. Like, the first volume is called Immortality Immortality Ain't Forever or something like that. I don't know. It's a cool, it's a cool series. But that's completely off topic. <laughs> it's all good. So I think I'm on my last one now. And this will be a quick one. As we were talking earlier before we started the podcast... It was hard to track down information about that this one, and it's um, Dam- Damphir. 
Damphir? Damphir? Dampire? Whatever. Uh, Stillborn. And it came out in 1997. It was written by um, horror novelist Nancy Collins. And I believe it was one of, if not the last thing, one of the last things that editor Lou Stathis worked on before he died. And unfortunately he died too soon. I think he was only like in his early 40s. But it revolves around this this young man, Nicholas Gaunt, who has these horrible visions. And the, the art is so beautiful. It, it, it is a horror comic. Just really bloody, violent stuff that hey, he hold sees. Hold on one second. Damn Pierre. <laughs> <laughs> That's how it's pronounced. <laughs> Thank you, Webster pronunciation. Damn Pierre. Damn Pierre. Okay, now we know. Okay, continue. <laughs> Uh, yeah, basically this this young guy who is seeing a bunch of horrible visions. He doesn't know if he's going crazy. He doesn't know if they're real. But they push him to commit a lot of sadistic, self-harming acts. Until the very end of the comic when he finds out that basically he's half human, half vampire. I guess what makes this so attractive to me, there's a huge what if with this comic. Because this was not supposed to be a standalone comic. It was supposed to be a series. And that's what makes it so... I guess irritatingly fascinating in some ways is because I don't know if they stopped out of respect for Lou Staffus. Like it was really his baby and, and he was so committed to it that they thought another editor couldn't do it or just because you know, there, there was no place for it to go. They thought, or it didn't sell well. I really don't know. And I had a hard time uh, finding in, any information about it. I didn't know any of that. I, just, <laughs> I have the prestige format, like one shot, that I got, jeez, I don't know, when it was new. And I read it then, and I, it's just been on my shelf since then. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you get a chance, reread it and tell me what yeah. you think, if it resonates with you um, like it did with me. But yeah, um, it'll have to be one that we go into. I, yeah, I would, I would like to, because it is a cliffhanger. At the very end, spoilers... At the very end, he discovers what he is, yeah. and um, usually it... Which, I mean, that's kind of that's given by the title. <laughs> yes, yes. Thank you for that. <laughs> Bear with me here. It's just funny that, like, you know, we lead up to that moment when, in reality, that's the title of it. But if it was ongoing, that would make sense. Because the first issue is, oh, establish what he is, and then from there, the rest of the, the story will, will be informed by that. But if it's just a one-off, then it's like the title spoiling the story. Right, right. <laughs> and I guess that's that's uh, the cliffhanger is what makes is one of the things that makes it so interesting is because now that he is aware of who he is and where he comes from, like what is he gonna do with that power? Yeah. You know, will he use it for good or evil? The uh, the age-old struggle. But one thing I really another thing I really appreciate about this book is that. Uh, I'm going to bastardize this quote from Stathis, very much so. But uh, he basically said in an interview once that there's connections through all of popular art, art and culture. Mostly talking about music and something along the lines of, oh, I wrote it down here. Uh, there's an intense cross-cultural media conversation going on and all you have to do to hear it is stop listening selectively. I really like that because when I look at uh, the book, the art is, it's very frightening and it's very gorgeous. 
and this is going to sound very artsy-fartsy and pretentious, but you look at the book and you can see music all throughout the book because Stathis was very much like, he, he loved music and um, he encouraged artists and creators like, you know, what do you listen to while you work? Like, listen to music, that kind of thing. And you read the book and you see like, you see grunge in there and you see emo and you see like 90s alt rock because it came out in 1997. Like even the cover looks like it could be an album cover for, you know, some, mm -hmm. some grunge band. Yeah, or... <laughs> so I, that's what I really appreciated about it is of course the mystery factor. What would this series have gone on to be if Lou Stathis was still alive? I don't know. Maybe they'll pick it up again. Maybe. Um, Nancy yeah. Collins is still alive. So mm -hmm. They won't, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't break my dreams. Vertigo's gone, man. Vertigo's, DC killed it. Uh, I know, I know. <laughs> Which that was one of my ideas for this show is at the beginning, just have like a reverse countdown. Like it's been so many days since there's been a Vertigo gone. <laughs> I just, the, the two reasons I didn't is number one, it's hard to pin down when they actually stopped producing because they switched the Sandman Universe comics from Vertigo to Black Label in, like, November 2019. But technically, Vertigo ended at, like, January 2020. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's really irritating to me that they did that. So they did away with the Vertigo imprint because they said that they wanted, like, more consistency with the brand. Like, they wanted DC, the mainstream DC stuff. They wanted a kid's brand and an adult brand. And that's it. Adult brand is going to be Black Label, because they've like forced that into creation a couple of years ago. Kids brand, I can't remember the name of it, but that's it. That's the only ones we're doing. We're also going to allow Young Animal. That's the other adult brand. That's fine. We'll do Young Animal. Oh, you know what? We'll do Hill House 2. That'll be the Joe Hill's sub-imprint of Black Label. Uh, but that's it. That's all we're doing. <laughs> you could have done all of that under Vertigo. Like Vertigo was, was an imprint that had sub banners and sub imprints and shit like that. And it never was, it was never confusing or, or right. weird, you know, like they had Vertigo Visions, they had V2K. It was just a weird uh, editorial decision. And now watching uh, DC slowly implode in on themselves over these last couple months, I can't help but think there was probably just some, some desire to save money. They just laid off quite a few people over the last couple of weeks. I don't know if you heard about that or not. But I did not. It's like the, the second DC implosion. Ooh. And yet they're giving Zack Snyder $30 million to finish his his version of Justice League. Yes, yes. As scored by Leonard Cohen. <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. Well, any, any wrap-up? Any closing thoughts on favorite Vertigo stories? There's a lot that I could have gone into. You know, like... Like, I, I would have loved to talk about It's a Bird, or I Die at Midnight, or Any of Preacher, or Why the Last Man, Sandman Mystery Theater. <laughs> but again, I, I, I want to give a lot of these stories, because, like, there's even, even short stories that Vertigo published, there's, there's still a lot to unpack and talk about. So I want to give all of these a proper due. And even the things that we talked about today, I'd still like to come back to in later episodes or whatever. There is a wealth of information and just a wealth of material to talk about. Like quite a few of the titles that you mentioned I haven't read before, and now I'm excited to read them. So, yeah, create a whole new list of favorites. Uh, well, um, if you would like to suggest something or ask a question or tell us how 
poorly we got it <laughs> anything uh feel free to reach out the uh, email is vertigovoices at gmail.com you can look me up on twitter at vertigovoices you on twitter i am not on twitter you find both of us on twitter at vertigovoices <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you for listening. And again, uh, we like hate mail. Or, you know, if you want to tell us how, how wonderful we're doing, we'll take that too. And just keep reading and let us know what you think. Sounds good. Yeah, and we'll figure out what to talk about next time. All right. Eventually. <laughs> All right. See ya. <laughs> Bye-bye.